welcome everybody. Come on in if you're just arriving. Um, just a hand out there, hopefully on the stand. And um, we're talking about the, the biblical doctrine of the church, and I just thought I'd begin with just a quick review of the things we've learned so far. Um, these are just sort of a review of the first, first five classes or so. Uh, we've learned first class that the church is where God's epic story has always been headed. Um, we are living in, in history, the most epic story ever. And the church is what Jesus came to create through his death and resurrection. The church is the, the goal and the object of his death and resurrection, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and obviously many sisters. And so we, we are where God's story is headed. Um, God raising up for himself a people who loves him. And we've learned how the church is defined primarily with reference to our head, Jesus Christ. What is the church? The church is all those who are one with Jesus Christ. It's a very simple way of remembering what the church is. And if you think about that definition, it'll cause you to remember that even those before Jesus, in other words, the Old Testament saints, even they are part of the church. Why? Because they are one with Jesus. They had the same faith as we have, a faith in the coming Redeemer, in our case, in the, um, a faith in the Redeemer who has come. So the church is defined by our unity with Jesus, and we're going to keep going back to this, how union with Christ is at the heart of all that we're going to be talking about um, in this class. And then um, we've learned how the church is the community of the Spirit. So thinking about union with Christ, we have the Spirit of Christ in us, and that means, one of the things it means is that we have all of us particular gifts that are diverse. So just as our bodies are diverse, made up of many wonderful parts that all work together harmoniously, um, each one of you is gifted by the Holy Spirit in unique ways. Um, and we talked about using those for the building up of the body. And then last time we talked about how do you know the church when you see it? How do you identify the church? And we talked about the three marks of the church. Can anybody give me the three marks of the church? How do you know the church when you see it? Scott? Preaching? Right? Sacraments? Church discipline, right. So if you have those three things, and they're being done with at least some measure of faithfulness, we can say there is the church, right? Even if there's, you know, problematic doctrine, even if, um, you know, there's, there's ways in which discipline could be more faithfully enacted, um, there's, there's the church when you have those three things. And then we also talked about, okay, a healthy church is going to have much more than that. Right? It's going to have a vibrant body, uh, body life. It's going to be as faithful to the scriptures as it can be, etc. Um, and one of the, just the payoffs of last time that I, I don't know that I hammered enough, and I just want to say it one more time, is that if you understand that broad understanding of the church, and you understand that the church is much, much bigger than the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, um, and or just the Reformed world, you understand that the church is so much bigger than that, then it should lead you to want to pursue unity with other Christians. Um, the, the big idea, the kind of big practical payoff from last time wasn't just, 
here's how you know the church when you see it. It's also, look, insofar as you can be one with another Christian, or insofar as two churches can work together, they should. Uh, We should never do that to the compromise of our conscience. But insofar as we can find common cause with other believers, let's maximize that. Um, Let's not view other Christian churches with suspicion. Rather, let's pray for them. Let's root for them. Let's say, we want you to succeed, and we're going to be praying for you. And I don't know if you noticed, but there in our prayer list every week is praying for other local churches, right? The idea being, Let's, let's pray that the other churches in Vandalia that actually are preaching the gospel, that they would grow more faithful, right? Um, so we're, we're trying to live that out um, in our labors. Okay, so that brings us to today, um, which is the beginning of several Sunday school classes. I've yet to figure out how many. Um, but we're going to be talking about now the mission of the church. So we've been talking a lot about the identity of the church. What is the church? Now we're going to shift and we're talking about, okay, based on the church being what it is, what are we supposed to be doing? What is the mission of the church? Let me just ask you all, why is it so important that we be very clear about what the mission of the church is? Like, what's at stake if we mess this up, (laughs) if we don't, don't get clear in our head on this? Okay. Good, yeah, so the spiritual life of other believers and, and, you know, believers in the church. um, If the church is losing sight of its mission, um, there's going to be people languishing. Yeah, keep going. That's that's good. Why is it so important that we be really clear in our heads what we are here to do? Yeah, Todd. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you've forgotten your purpose, you may be doing other things very well, but, you know, you, you've missed your mission, right? You've missed the purpose for which God has you. Um, and just think about this, like in an organization, just generally, what happens when a company or, um, you know, a nonprofit or something loses sight of its mission, well, it starts to experience what we call mission creep, right? Where all of a sudden, well, let's do this. And everybody's saying, well, yeah, sure, why not, you know? And so what kind of mission creep can we have in the church? I mean, I think you all are aware of some of these. Um, It can become a social group. Like, why are we here? Because we really have great friends here, and we like having fun together. Okay, (laughs) but what's that missing? Well, we're going to see some very important parts of the mission of the church. Or, um, you know, churches can have mission creep towards just becoming very politicized, and we basically become kind of a political rallying kind of um, group. Um, Also problematic, as we'll see, um, the mission of the church is political, and that that does have political implications, we will see. Um, But it's so much more than that, right? Or uh, we become completely wrapped around various social causes, right? And we're all about, um, say, helping the poor or pursuing social justice in some respect. Also, you know, elements of truth there, right? But the church is meant to be so much more, so much more than that. So what is the church meant to be? We better get really clear on this because 
if we're not really clear what's going to happen, we're going to just sort of drift wherever our inclinations lead us. And we won't be able to say no to certain things that may be good but secondary, right? We have limited resources. We have limited money. We have limited human power. We have limited time. We need to remain focused on the most important things. It's so critical. And so we need to keep in view our mission. So what is our mission? Let's look to the Bible to find out. So the first thing I want to say is this principle that what Jesus began, the church completes. So remember, Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. He is the, the head of the church. He is the forerunner. The, um, the word in um, Hebrews, he uses it a couple times. It's a really cool word in Greek that basically means pioneer. Um, the guy who goes first, right, and blazes the path, that's Jesus. And he says that what he has, the path he has trod, he wants us to trod after him. What he has begun, he wants us to bring to completion, which is a kind of you know, mind-blowing thing that Jesus wants us to complete what he's begun. But he says it, John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And this, I still, like, can't believe this, he says this, but, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. There's a lot of theology built into that, right? That Jesus going to the Father means that he becomes first recipient of the Spirit, Yes, Jesus does receive the Holy Spirit as a man. And then as a man, he pours out on us the Spirit that he himself has received to the uttermost. And it's because he's gone to the Father and received the Spirit that he's able to give the Spirit. And that is why we are able to do even greater works than he himself did on earth. Like, what? Really? (laughs) Yes. And... um, even just think about on earth, he was foreshadowing this and how he treated his disciples. So Matthew um, 8 and 9, after the Sermon on the Mount, he does amazing works of healing, amazing works of exorcism and, um, and uh, you know, blessing for, for people. And then he turns around, Matthew 10, and he sends out to the disciples, and this is what he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. In other words, as I have done to you, and as I have done to everybody around you, now I want you guys to go and do that. And you can imagine the disciples saying, wait, us? (laughs) And yet, God gave them the authority and the power to do those things. And so, that was a temporary kind of initial foreshadowing mission. It's also the permanent mission. So, Acts 1, 1 and 2 Again, very paradigmatic kind of statement here. Um, Luke writes, In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. What's the implication? What's, gonna be the, book of ba- what's the book of Acts going to be about? Exactly, all that Jesus is continuing to do. But then you're saying to yourself, wait a second, all that Jesus is continuing to do? Like, I thought the book, you know, it's the Acts of the Apostles, right? What, what's, the, what's the underpinning of that? Yeah, they can't do anything without Christ, and indeed, as they're doing all that they do in the book of Acts, it is by the power of Christ. That's why the book of Acts begins with the outpouring of the Spirit, right? 
because they have the spirit of the risen Christ and Jesus is actually in them, that means they are able to do the work of Jesus. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And we're thinking to ourselves, what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus? Like, I thought his death was all sufficient. And of course it is. And we're going to talk about how, um, how to understand this in a moment. But the basic, basic point here is that Jesus began the suffering that is needed to bring about the restoration of the world. And now, Paul says, not just he, but all of us are filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And this is where we really have to to get in our heads this idea that when we do our work, when we do the things the church is meant to do, and we do it in union with Jesus, really it's Jesus doing it in and through us. So right after Jesus gives the Great Commission, which we're going to talk about um, momentarily, he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Implication, I am in you as you are doing um, these great things. Or Colossians 1, just a little bit later, he's talking about the great work of preaching and presenting everyone mature in Christ. And he says, For this work I toil, struggling with all his energy, Jesus' energy, that he powerfully works within me. So anything the church does that is redemptive, anything that we do that is transformative, that brings about glory, that brings about repentance, faith, fruit, it's always going to be by the Spirit, by the power of Jesus working in us. And yet we need to be really clear when we say we complete what Jesus begins, we're not saying that Jesus' work of atonement um, was incomplete. There are certain things that are exclusively the property of the head. Um, so when we talk about Jesus' work, he did say on the cross, it is finished. So there are certain aspects of what he's done and what he's set out to do that is 100% complete. Like there's no more atoning for sin that needs to be done, right? And so when Paul says, I am filling up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ, he's not talking about, well, Good thing I'm here to suffer some more and make sure all the sins are atoned for. No, uh, Jesus has already paid for it all. But at the same time, there's a lot of application of that completed work that needs to go on. So John Murray has this great book, really concise but really profound. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And that's a great way of remembering the head and the body. Redemption accomplished, Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. It's done. It's complete. Atonement. Justification. Like the the good work that God has done for us to take away our sin has been accomplished on the cross once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. We don't need to keep offering more sacrifices and such. Right? It's done. And yet, that once for all work of Jesus needs to be applied. There are lots of sins Jesus has paid for that have yet... Um, that the, the, the blessings that he's purchased, he's, he's paid for it all, that have yet to be claimed, that have yet to be received. There are people in this day, right today, now, who are currently in their sins, children of wrath, Ephesians 2, who are under the wrath and curse of God, who need to receive what Jesus has already paid for for them. The elect, in other words, the elect who have not yet received the, the blessing of Jesus' atonement, 
who will not, will not receive it until, how will, they, how will they believe unless they hear? How will they hear unless someone is sent? Who's going to send? The church. Okay? The church is God's means for bringing about the application of Jesus' redemptive work. And it's always, I just want to keep saying, it's always the spirit through the church. Right? We talk about who, who applies the work of Jesus to us. Well, first thing we need to say is the Holy Spirit. Right? But the, the whole idea of what I'm trying to say is that the Holy Spirit is going to use you and me. He's going to, he's going to use the church to accomplish this great work of applying Jesus' redemptive work in the world. And this is, of course, going to lead us to the question, what is Jesus' big goal in his redemptive work? Because this is going to give us our mission. But let me just... Um, just pause for a moment um, and ask you, if the work of the church is to complete what Jesus began, how is this going to help us to know our purpose? How is this going to be a useful thing? So we want to know our purpose, and I'm making the basic point that church is completing what Jesus began. How is this going to help us? Yeah, Scott? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it gives us a criteria. It gives us um, fences around what we're supposed to do. And, and I, part of what I'm bringing out, and I think, I think it's what you're saying as well, is that when we want to understand what the church is supposed to be doing, we're not just reading those passages like Matthew 28, the Great Commission, you know, or Acts 1, 8, which talks about the, the preaching mission of the church. We're not just looking at those kind of church passages. We're also looking at the entirety of what Jesus did, right? Because what Jesus did is going to show us what we are bringing to completion, right? You getting, getting that? Um, other thoughts on this about how seeing our work as completing what Jesus began is going to help us? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and that whole idea of, like, Jesus claiming all of life, right? Uh, it was such a big idea for me when I was in college. Like, I just, I had this segmented idea of religion is like something you do sa- Sunday morning. It's just sort of like a part of your life, right? But what, what you're bringing out and really what, what this is going to show us is that this is, like, all-encompassing. Like, literally, absolutely everything that you do, from the most mundane thing to the more big things of life, all of that is claimed by Jesus and part of the mission of Jesus for this world. Um, Yeah, which is going to be really big. So let's talk about what is Jesus's big goal? Because if we understand his big goal and we understand what he was beginning and what he set in motion in his death and resurrection, then we can understand what our big goal is. And I want to 
have you turn in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians um, 15. This is just one of the these really big picture passages in the Bible, and um, there was a moment in seminary where I heard a sermon on this that really blew my mind, that made me realize that, like, this may be the passage that gives us the furthest look into the future, even beyond the book of Revelation. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read uh, 22 through 28. So, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus is going to be raised first. He already has been. And then at his coming, everyone who belongs to Christ will also be raised. Then comes the end when he, that is Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every power, every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, <clears throat> but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Who's accepted? God the Father, right? Because the him in subjection under him, the him is Jesus. So it is plain that God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection under Jesus Christ. Now get this, verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is, Jesus, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so what's the goal of history? What is Jesus' goal according to this passage? Everything subjected to the Father through Jesus Christ. Yes. And, and that's exactly what this passage is saying. And I, and I hope you, you start to see, wow, like what Jesus is working towards is this massive gift. Like he loves the Father. What does the Father want? He wants a world that is in subjection to him. In other words, a world that is living for his glory, a world that is honoring him. So Jesus is in the midst of wrapping up this huge present, which is literally everything in existence. And what's he going to do once it's all perfected? Is he going to say, aha, the perfect world, it's all mine? No, what's he going to do? <laughs> He's going to then offer it up to the Father. And you think about this, this is the opposite of Adam, right? Adam is seizing for himself the kingdom, right? Jesus, the second and better Adam, gets it all. And then, remember Satan's temptation? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. What's the idea? In other words, they're yours. They're all mine, 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 right? That was what he was offering. And Jesus recognizes this as the antithesis of what he was actually given as his mission, which is to make it all the fathers, the fathers, the fathers. Now, let's just, let's just make sure we really get this in our heads. What does it mean, in your own words, what does it mean, in your own words, to have everything in subjection to the Father? 
What does that mean? Everything's in the subjection to the Father. In other words, when will it all be perfect? Yeah, Anna? Great. Yeah, so we, we understand God is sovereign over everything, including when people sin, right? And this is part of this, the majesty of who God is, is that even when, you know, Joseph's brothers throw him in the pit and they think they've, you know, thwarted um, this, this vision that Joseph had of everybody bowing down to him, well, God ends up using it um, to save the world, right, through Joseph, right? So even your sin, God meant for good. He can, he can superintend everything for his good. And so what's it talking about? God's already sovereign over everything. When it says all things in subjection to him, it means something more. Yes, and yeah, Danielle. Yeah. Yeah. So all these passages like Isaiah 2 and, um, let's see, you know, uh, number of the Psalms that talk, Psalm 47, talks about, all the nations coming and praising God as king. And so what's that talking about? It's talking about not just everything being in subjection to him, which it is, in the, in the sense he's sovereign over it, but it's all of it being publicly demonstrated, and as you put it, Anna, willingly in subjection to him, right? And so it's one thing for a sinner to be, you know, in the will of God in the sense that he's always going to end up doing what fits into God's good plans. It's another thing for that sinner to say, I believe that God is real and I'm going to serve him. It's one thing for, you know, the, the, the creation to everything about it picture, um, to, to everything about it be under God's sway. It's another thing for the, all the creation to be beautified and reflecting his excellence in everything. Right? And so when we talk about all things being subjected to God, we're talking about everything, everywhere you look, visibly, there is the glory of God. Everywhere you look, visibly, there are people raising their hands in praise to the Lord. So this is brought out um, in other passages as well that hopefully will make this click for you. Um, because this is the goal of history. So we really, we, we probably should understand this, right? <laughs> like, What's the meaning of life? Well, we're talking about it. Jesus is objectively the king overall. That's what happened in his resurrection from the dead. A man was granted authority literally over absolutely every square inch of this world, including the spiritual realm. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Everything is under his feet. And so we have Psalm 110, you know, all things under his feet. Um, and Psalm 8 as well. And then Hebrews 1, it reinforces this. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, literally all things. Jesus is the heir. He is the owner of all things. And this son has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So God the Father is the great king of all, and he has his son who now rules on his behalf over everything, sitting at his right hand so that all things literally are under his feet. Everything belongs to Jesus. And Abraham Kuyper has this great, great quote. There is not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In other words, 
Jesus claims every sphere of our human existence. He cares about, obviously, your money. He cares about your time. He claims how you, like, how, how your house looks, how your yard looks. He, he claims how, what clothes you wear. He claims everything, your, how you relate to your friends, how you relate to your family, the things we do corporately. He claims how you play sports. He claims how you do politics. He claims everything. And he says, that needs to be in submission to me because I am the king. And yet, here's the big kind of thing that hopefully you, makes you realize there's still much to be done. Hebrews 2, 5 um, says, you know, God has te- subjected the world to, the com- to come, not to angels, but to his son. He put everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. And yet, here's the big mo- idea, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So everything belongs to Jesus, but there are people today whose fists are raised against him and who think they're going to get away with it. There are aspects of your life and my life that have yet to be fully brought under the sovereign sway of Jesus that we haven't really offered to him yet. That's a problem. That's, that's something that's not right, that needs to be rectified. And so the church's mission is to make Jesus' kingship over all things visible. We want to see his kingdom come, his will done. Don't we pray that every single day when we do the Lord's Prayer or every single Sunday when we pray the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, Lord. Wait, I thought he was already the king. Oh, yes, he is. Now I want your kingdom to come. I want want it to be visible. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It's a new creation kingdom. But it is coming into the world. Right? Jesus, the king reigns, and he is invading the old creation with his new creation kingdom. And we are the outpost. We are, it says, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so the church, what is the church? We are God's holy city, his holy nation. We already talked about those metaphors before. And we are the outpost of the rightful king who are here on earth as the invasion party heralding Jesus' rightful claim in all things and calling people to honor the king. Remember Psalm 2? How does it climax? You know, it, it sets the stage with all the nations grinding their teeth against the Messiah, saying, let's cast away his cords from us. That's the world we live in. Rebels against the true high king. And what does it say? It says, I have installed my king on Zion. That's what the father says. And he says, I've given to you the nations as their inheritance. And then it says, so be wise, O kings. Honor the son. Kiss the son. Do homage to the son. That's our calling, is to make known the kingship of Jesus and call people to honor the son. And so that's why Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And the very next thing he says is, go. I have received all the authority. I am the king. Now I want you, go, make disciples of all the nations. Bring about the submission to the Son that should be the right response to the kingship of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So do you understand? When we are making disciples, we, the city of God, 
are making the kingship of Jesus known. We're expanding the city. We are we're expanding the city by bringing about not just new disciples, that of course is an expansion of the city, but also even in existing disciples here. When we realize, whoa, this part of my life is not being subjected to Jesus. Like the way I talk in my words really has not been brought underneath the sway of the king. Well, now the kingdom is advancing. So, um, any questions on this big idea of the holy city um, advancing, the kingdom advancing? Uh, the fact that Jesus reigns over everything, but we don't yet see everything. Uh, is this clicking? Yes. Yeah, Betty? Yeah. Yeah, so um, the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. Has it ever been misused? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely. Um, and we're going to talk about um, different views of um, the church's um, role in society um, next time. But, uh, but yes, so like sometimes people use Jesus' the kingdom is not of this world to basically check out of... Um, very large segments of our duty to be disciples um, and basically saying, you know, it's a spiritual kingdom, so we should really only in the church be concerned with religious things, spiritual things, um, which then leaves all of these other spheres of life untouched by the claims of the Messiah. Um, so that's not where this is going to go <laughs> when I say that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the two kingdoms perspective, um, this idea that there there's sort of these two disparate realms, the, the heavenly realm and the um, earthly realm. And we're going to talk more about this, so I'll, I'll be able to put a little bit more nuance on this um, in future classes. But um, essentially saying, look, whenever the church um, wades into all of the things of this life um, and gets, gets its hands dirty in all of the, the specifics, of this life, um, now we're starting to lose sight of the church's spiritual mission, right? And we want to say, well, actually, uh, or at least I'm going to argue that the, the spiritual mission, if you understand it, is to make the, you know, hidden realities of Jesus, his kingship, visible realities in all that we do and say. Yeah, Chuck? <laughs> yeah, right. Excellent. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I know this may sound kind of shocking, but the goal of the Christian life is not to go to heaven when you die, right? When you die, yes, your spirit is um, perfected in holiness and does immediately pass into glory and and it's true, your body then lays in, in the grave until the resurrection. Yeah, but let me ask you this. What are we missing when we say that the mission of the church is to get as many people into heaven as possible before they die? What are we missing when we say the mission of the church is just get as many people saved as possible before they die? 
Yeah, on earth as it is in heaven. Again, as Chuck was saying, yes. Yeah, we want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see the new creation coming down out of heaven. Like, what is, what is your permanent home? It's not heaven. It's the new creation. You will be raised bodily. And in fact, you can't honor God for all eternity without your body. Um, you're not a full human being without your body. And so your body is necessary for the fulfillment of the purpose for which God made you. In other words, if you can't, you know, sip wine and feast on delicious food in the new creation, Isaiah 25, then you haven't yet fully entered into what God made you to do, right? Like the, the, the new creation is something that is going to be a bodily experience. Praise the Lord. It's going to be a great rejoicing and partying before the Lord in a way that has no sin entangled with it, where we don't abuse any of these things and become gluttons or whatever. Um, no, where we're instead we're, we're offering up even our joys to the Lord, our bodily joys um, to him, finally. Yeah, so I'm trying to give a robust view of the church's mission by saying, look, we want not just to, you know, be saving people's souls, we want to be saving people's souls so then they can honor Jesus with their bodies. Yeah. Did I see somebody's hand back there? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so what does it mean then? Yeah, you're asking when it says, my kingdom is not of this world. I mean, I think part of what it's saying, as you say, is it is, it is not originating from this old creation world. Jesus is coming from heaven. He's the man from heaven, sent from God. Very big theme in John, which is when that, where that passage appears. I think another thing, though, that it means is that um, this is not of the same order. This, this new creation is not of the same order as the old creation. The old creation, you know, Jesus entered into the old creation, and he took on an old creation body. But he's saying, look, if my disciples were of this creation, we would be fighting with swords. We would be interested in, you know, um, dominion in the sense that the world thinks about dominion. Um, no, we're, we're actually interested in, in a new creation entering into the world, um, another order of kingdom. Um, I'm trying to say this rightly, like... Uh, the new creation that Jesus is bringing is never going to pass away. It's never going to be subjected to the curse. It's never going to fall. It's never going to be subjected to God's judgment. Um, and so the kingdom that he's bringing is of an entirely different order and has an entirely different origin too. So let's talk about what it looks like to be part of the city. And this is where I'm now, this is just part one, right? So there's going to be more that I'm going to say than just this. What does it mean to be God's holy city? What is, it, what is it like? Let's start making this practical and tangible. You might be saying this is like a really abstract class, right? Well, um, what does it mean to, to be God's holy city? At least a, a key part of it is worship. In fact, this is the most central part. What's at the center of God's city? The temple. The most important thing that God's people do is to worship him. This is at the very center of the church's mission. If we are not worshiping, we won't be able to do the rest of the mission. We're going to talk about why that is. I love this quote by Piper. Missions exists because worship doesn't. 
Why do we do missions? Because there's an, a vacancy, an absence of worship. What is it that makes this world so broken? Is that it's filled with people who are silent in terms of their attitude towards God. They don't recognize Him as God. They don't praise Him as God. So what does it mean to worship? It means lots of things, and I hope this kind of expands your definition. It means adoring God for who He is. So not just what He's done, but who He is. Reflecting on Him. Focusing our eyes on Him. Celebrating His great works of creation and redemption. Not just creation. Psalm 104 is set right next to Psalm 105. Psalm 104, celebration of God's creation. Psalm 105, it's a story psalm of God's work in redemption. The old Exodus, but we can now sing it in a higher register for the new Exodus. It's offering to God our fealty. In other words, pledging our obedience to God. You realize that when we say the confession in the worship service, it's basically, I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ. Right? You know, growing up in public school, some of you who have, who have done that, you know, you pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America at the beginning of every school day, right? Well, this is offering our fealty to the Son, right? Really important because, after all, what is it that makes it the, that the kingdom has arrived? When it's made visible, when that, that obedience to Jesus is made visible, they did that on the mountain, Exodus 24, 7. All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. That's what we say every single worship service at the, after we've repented of our sin and then we come before God and say, Lord, we want to serve you. We're offering him our fealty. It's also receiving from God his wisdom and his strength and his grace. That's worship. It's also being transformed as we receive all of that good stuff. So 2 Corinthians 3 Beholding the glory of the Lord, what happens? We are transformed from glory to glory. In other, in other words, when we come to worship and then when we leave worship, the kingdom has advanced. Why? Because we've seen the glory of God and we can't see the glory of God and walk away unchanged. So worship is so much more than just singing. We are worshiping when we are confessing our sin, when we're listening to God's word, when we're praying, when we're doing the sacraments. Do you realize that? When you're, when you're there paying attention to the sermon. You are worshiping. You are offering to God your fealty, your, your obedience. You are loving and adoring Him. And just think about this. We're doing all of this in union with Christ. Jesus is the head worshiper. As a man, Jesus worshiped the Father. And we saw Him in prayer when He was um, in His, um, this worldly um, existence when He was here. And even now, it says Hebrews 2.12, he is the great worship leader. I mentioned this before. Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. I, the Son, will sing your praise, the Father. So Jesus, as a man, is the chief worshiper. He is establishing the worship of the Father on earth. He has come, remember John 4, seeking worshipers? the Father, and He is the first worshiper, the primary worshiper. He's the one that is what we call the mediator between God and man, the one who takes our worship and perfects it so that as our half-hearted worship, which is often distracted with thoughts about what we're going to have for lunch and all our worries about all kinds of other stuff, um, God takes that, and as that's filtered through the, the mediator, it's perfected so that what comes to the throne is beautiful and pleasing in God's sight. 
So think about this. Worship actually goes two ways, and I hope this is kind of an aha moment for you. Who is worship for, or whom is worship for? It is for God in the sense that we offer to him our love. And, um, you know, a couple passages. You are living sacrifices. First Peter 2 um, talks about you are um, a spiritual priesthood, um, renewed priesthood, offering spiritual sac- sacrifices to God, which are acceptable through Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, 5, a holy priest, priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. Yes. So God receives something from us in worship. He receives what is his due from his creation. Here, finally, there is lifting up to the throne what was always meant to be lifted up to the throne. Right? Adam was meant to spring all things in subjection to God and then offer himself in subjection to God. Right? That's what we're doing when we worship. God receives that. He loves it. But then it also goes the other direction, too. When we worship, waters of life flow from God's throne. And we see this image in Ezekiel and in Revelation 22. The, there's a river flowing from the throne of God. In fact, think about how in the Solomon's temple, there was the labor, right, the big sea, but then there was also those movable um, uh, those uh, little labors on wheels. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> the idea is to picture that there's a throne flowing with living water coming from the throne. And so what is that picturing? Well, I, have, I love this quote from Lightheart. As the real men and real, uh, real women and children with real bodies and souls gather for worship and then disperse from worship, heavenly life comes to earth. The, the life you receive from Jesus then issues forth. We become the river going out. The sanctuary, the place of worship and communion with God is the center of the world. So like what's happening here in each Lord's Day worship is the center of the entire universe. We are at the very throne of God and what's happening? God from his throne is issuing forth grace and life. And it's coming to us. We are drinking of it. We are loving it. We're reveling in it, right? That's what worship is. We're receiving from God his life. And then what do we do with that life? Well, well, then we leave and we go out and we give the life that we have received in our world. And that means we then love our families and we do our work excellently and we love our neighbors and tell them about Jesus and all the things that we wouldn't be able to do if we didn't actually have life in ourselves. Right? And so what is worship saying? Worship is saying the kingdom of God has arrived. The city is here. Jesus reigns here. Jesus' grace has triumphed over sin here. In other words, worship is a profoundly transformative thing for a society. What happens when there's no worship in a particular country or a particular area? Sin festers and grows over and takes over and there are brambles and evil that grow and get out of control. What happens when there's worship? All that stuff is pushed back and the darkness is pushed back and life emerges from God's throne. So that's the first part of our mission is to worship God. It's the most important part. And in light of this, let me ask you, how should we respond when someone says, I can be a Christian but not come to worship? This is what we would call a softball. (laughs) How should we respond to a Christian? Because there are a lot of them out there. 
who say, I'm a Christian, and then they're like, they never come to corporate worship. How should we respond to that? I'm sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're starving yourself. Why are you, what are you doing? You're missing out on the feast. Yeah. And of course, we can appreciate how for some of these Christians, the reason why they're not coming is because they haven't experienced a feast, right? They, they come and they feel more drier than they were before because the word isn't being opened and it's not being proclaimed in a life-giving way. And, and so we, we want to have patience and um, not be proud as we say that. But yeah, right, you're, you're, you're right. Like it's meant to be a feast, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you don't have a high view of God and like the fact that like this is the source of all that is good, all that is truly life, right? then you're not going to be that compelled to go and go and visit him, right? Uh, keep your appointment with him. Like literally every human being has an appointment with God on their calendars on Sunday. And this is where you're supposed to be. This is where like the divine king has said, I personally command your presence um, in my throne room. <laughs> well, you're going to want to go there if you believe it's, going to be a life-giving thing because you know God is life. Yeah. Here's another question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, let us not forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. Like, there it is. Um, there it is, an explicit biblical command. Like, this is not just sort of like, well, when you feel like, or when you're feeling spiritually hungry, or when it would serve you. Um, no, this is, this is like the central part of the church's mission, is to offer to God our love and adoration and fealty and praise. Um, it is a command performance. Excellent. Well, one other question I want us to think about. Do you think of worship and the offering of Jesus, your obedience, your recognition of his kingship, do you think of worship and that offering to Jesus of your obedience, do you think of that as the center of what you were made to do, as the great goal of your humanity? Um, How does this kind of, I don't know, change your view of yourself and of your life when when you start to internalize this? Yeah, Mike. Mm. Yes. Yeah, your priorities really change. Yeah, and you you start being less wowed by the things the world is wowed by in the things that are really central to the world start to become less and less important. Um, yeah, Lightheart, in his book, uh, I brought it with me. 
This is a very, this was a very uh, stimulating book. I, I just, just listened to this, The Theopolitan Vision. Um, there's things in here I would, I would take issue with, but it really, it, it's about the vision of God's city, Theopolitan, God's city, right? Um, and it's, a, it's about the vision of the church. And you're just talking about, like, when you really get into what God's worship is meant to be, the fact that it's this whole-on renewal of the covenant with God, um, that it's, you know, we're coming, we're entering to his presence, we're confessing our sins, we're, we're having that relationship renewed with him, and then we're enjoying that relationship. We're getting, uh, we're getting uh, life from his throne as he feeds us uh, from both his word and sacrament, and then we're also responding back to that with, with our praises and with our prayers and our, our confession. Um, when you start getting that and you start realizing, hey, this is going to take more than just like 45 minutes, um, Lighthearted, this funny part, like, um, you really start to get this. You're going to stop asking, um, hey, is this going to make me late for kickoff? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, the, the sense of, like, priority, <laughs> priorities will shift. And you will start to realize, whoa, what we are here to do is so much bigger than what the world is so into, what the world thinks is life. Yeah, Chuck. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now when you're talking to an unbeliever and you're feeling very weak, well, what do you have? You have the power that Jesus has imparted to you right here, right? And you have the strength and the confidence that Jesus has given you right here. Like, we're not proclaiming, um, we're not saying, oh, won't you please, pretty please, um, worship Jesus. We're saying, uh, Jesus is the king, and he, he's calling all people to repentance and to faith, and he's such a gracious king, he welcomes even former rebels, right? Um, praise the Lord. So let's, let's thank him for the gift of worship and for the mission he's given to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that we have been given an awesome mission. It's, it's so awesome, we, we scarcely can believe that you've given it to us, um, this mission of completing what Jesus has begun. And we know there are certain things only he could have done and the only, thi only things he, that he himself did, like the atonement. And yet we're so privileged and we're so thankful that we get to now proclaim the effects of that atonement and the effects of that enthronement in heaven. We now get to see and to be used by you to bring about here on earth a greater and greater visible recognition of what is already true, namely that Jesus is king over all. And we pray that that would begin even just in a short few minutes in our time of worship. The Lord, as we offer ourselves to you and as we bow before you and as we, as we humbly kneel in uh, repentance before you and as we offer to, our, uh, offer to you our whole selves, not just our bodies, but, but every aspect of who we are, um, that, Lord, we would, we would see your kingdom come. And we pray that you would, as has just been mentioned, that you would really help us to derive life from your throne. Um, that even on the Sundays when, when maybe the word doesn't come with the greatest of clarity or, or um, doesn't really grip us, that, Lord, we would still derive that sense of your love and that we would derive that sense of our identity in Christ and that that would excite us and energize us to see your kingdom come a little bit more in the week that lies ahead. We know that you can do this, even in us weak sinners. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.